One writer says this, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, gender, social status, age, religion, all people share the language of suffering. We may not be able to relate to another's cultural music. We may not enjoy a country's exotic taste in food. We may fail to understand a particular people's humor. Yet for every human being, pain is pain. Anguish is anguish. We are all united by experiences of hardship, heartache, suffering, sadness, and grief. Right? Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We need to remember again and again and again that to be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean escape from Heartache and hard things and trials and tribulation. Those are the words of Jesus. And practically every letter in the New Testament expects that God's people would suffer and have some form of trial, tribulation, persecution, and the like. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We all can relate regardless of the circumstances. Um, some of you may be heard, I, I talked to a few of you this last couple days, but um, several of my friends on Friday, uh, we were united in our sadness over the death of Tim Keller. If you didn't hear, he went home to be with Jesus after three years of battling pancreatic cancer. Um, and so Friday, May 19, um, Tim Keller, um, some of us called him Yoda. Uh, for his wisdom in, in regards to church leadership and cultural engagement. But we are saddened. He's free from pain and, and um, uh, you know, uh, his, his son posted um, on social media, letting kind of the world know, and he wrote that. He said, Dad waited for everyone else to leave the room, and it was just him and Mom as Kathy Keller. And he wrote... Mom kissed dad on the forehead and then he passed. And uh, and I didn't know the guy, but he had an impact on me. I was trying to think back over the last 48 hours. Um, about the time I learned about Tim Keller was just as Soma was being conceived in my mind. Of course, God knew about the church, but um, so for 15, 16 years, and I was thinking back, we had some of our early growth groups going through different books of his and different video studies. And um, anyway, we've watched sermons by him in, in our church as well. So um, again, we, those that I talked to uh, that I knew would be impacted, we were united in some sadness this last, these last couple days. Well, I know this is a kind of, a, you know, this is what every what preaching class says. You, you shouldn't start a sermon so serious and heavy. And yet, this is life, friends. Um, This is life. And as we continue this morning, our series in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three, um, the letters to the seven churches, 
remember, we find seven real churches in Asia Minor near the end of the first century. I put a little map on the screen. That's hard to see too, I know from where you are, but uh, just that, that's the world today. Of course, the land hasn't changed, but those, those cities are the seven churches. Um, the bottom left is Ephesus, and that's where we saw or the, the letter we looked at last week, and, and we're going to come today to the one right above, Smyrna, just some 30 to 40 miles north of, of Ephesus. Real cities in Asia Minor near the end of the first century, and yet they are representative churches for us today. And so the church of Smyrna, that's who we're going to look at today, this was a church that was suffering. That's why the message began as it did, because we can all relate, and this church was suffering. It was a suffering church. It was a church that was being persecuted. But as we're going to see, and this is like the main thought you have to hear and hopefully take away, they were not alone. Jesus knew what they were facing. And we are not alone in our suffering and our trials and our hardships. We are not alone. Jesus knows what we are, are facing. The problems these churches faced, they're the same problems we face. The issues uh, they faced are the same ones we find in our contemporary day. And God has given us these wonderful chapters in Revelation, helping us understand some things, some struggles, some strengths, all of that. And so we're going to keep looking over the next few more weeks, one church, one letter per Sunday, as we make our way through the letters to the seven churches. Uh, one more time, the structure is just brief so you can see this and know this, and, and we'll kind of walk through this uh, today. Uh, but Jesus begins each letter with a command for um, the, the angel, or to, for a letter to be written to the angel. We, we talked about um, the angel might be uh, a messenger like a pastor. The angel might be a literal angel. Uh, the point is this is a letter to a church, and so there's a command to have something written. Uh, then Jesus says something about himself that this church needs to hear. And what he's going to say is something he had already revealed about himself to John in chapter one. Each of the seven letters, it's fascinating. Jesus says something about who he is. And those same phrases were complete in chapter one as John had the vision of Jesus. And then Jesus is going to give, uh, he's going to commend um, the churches. He's going to say, hey, you're doing these things right. Um, and, and so you see the churches there um, that, that get a commendation. Five of the seven um, get, get a word of encouragement. And then there's a rebuke um, to five of the churches. Two of them don't get a rebuke. Smyrna, who we're going to look at today, there's no rebuke by Jesus. Uh, also, as we'll see in a few weeks, the church at Philadelphia gets no rebuke, um, which is funny because Nowadays, Philadelphia is, you know, always kind of made fun of in sports world for how nasty their fans are and things. And you'd think if any city, the city of brotherly love would get a rebuke, uh, well, it would be them because they don't seem very loving uh, to sports fans. But back then, that city of Philadelphia had no rebuke from Jesus. But we'll get to there uh, down the road. Um, then there's an exhortation uh, to repent or persevere, some, some word from Jesus. Today, there's going to be three commands we'll note. And then again, there's a statement of what Jesus will do. All the churches, all the letters get this. And then all of them have this, this summons to hear what the Spirit says. Remember, this is to a church, but then at the end of each letter, each message, it says, let the, let the one who hears hear what the Spirit says to the church is. And this is why we say these have relevance for us. And then there's a promise for those who are victorious. 
Remember the, the Nike idea of being victorious, persevering, overcoming. And so that's, again, kind of how each of these letters work. But today we come to Smyrna, a church persecuted and suffering, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Join me as I read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. So we begin right there in verse 8 to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna, this is now modern day Izmir in western Turkey. I, I, I read this week that of the seven churches, this city is the only one that still remains. There are uh, remains to be found in those sites, but there's no longer a city of Ephesus. Uh, you can search it and, of course, Google Maps will tell you where it was, but it's got a new name now. But Smyrna still exists, and they just have a slight name change, modern city Izmir. And it's fascinating to look at pictures of, uh, of that city now. I wondered, you know, thinking about it, do they have, how many of the people, you know, realize that, like, there's a letter to their city, their church in, in the Bible, even to this day. Smyrna, a major seaport back in the day, as I mentioned, just 30, 40 miles north of Ephesus. Um, in fact, this city claimed to be the home of the poet Homer, so very famous in that regard. Some of its coins, even they put this on their coins, first of Asia in beauty and size, which of course Ephesus and other cities argued with, but just like in our day, right, cities come up with slogans that rep they think represent them, and so uh, Smyrna believed that about themselves. Uh, the Roman writer Cicero called Smyrna the city of our most faithful and most ancient allies. So Smyrna had been a long-time ally with Rome. It began in 195 BC, so about 200 years before uh, Christ, and then now this is probably AD 90 when, when John is writing. So for about 300 years almost uh, at this point, Smyrna was, was a, an ally and, and had a pretty strong allegiance with Rome. That's going to factor into what they're dealing with. Smyrna was the first city uh, away from Rome, away from Italy, to put uh, and build a temple to the goddess Roma. So that's how committed they were to the um, the imperial cult, the worship of, of the emperor. In AD 26, Tiberius chose Smyrna from 11 other Asian cities to become the keeper of the second imperial um, cult temple, again, the worship of emperor there in Asia. 
Um, we don't know when this church was founded. When did you know, the gospel get there? Scholars speculate that maybe when Paul lived in Ephesus, remember we noted last year that Paul lived in Ephesus over two years, long time there, and since it was just 30 to 40 miles away, possibly while living in Ephesus, he went up uh, to Smyrna uh, in, in that time, in like Acts chapter 19. Again, we aren't certain, but at some point the gospel went up, a church was formed. Uh, Smyrna is famous because John, the disciple, uh, the apostle who's writing this, um, he was um, very influential in someone named Polycarp. And so Polycarp is a person of history. Polycarp would serve as a bishop there, a pastor in Smyrna uh, in, in the early second century, so AD 100s. And Polycarp had, had been a, some people would say, a disciple of John. So John, the apostle, mentored Polycarp. Uh, he was, John was quite a bit older, but, but then John dies and Polycarp uh, rises up as this, this leader in this city. And, and Polycarp was the most, most famous martyr in the second century. And of course, a martyr is someone who dies for their faith. His confession, it's recorded for us. Um, he, he was told to renounce Jesus and to worship Caesar as Lord, and Polycarp refused. And so just before his dramatic execution, around AD 156, this is what was recorded uh, that Polycarp said. For 86 years, I have been his servant, speaking of Jesus, as opposed to Rome and Caesar. For 86 years, I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And, and at that, they, they executed him. To this church, this church, to this church that would, that boasted its connection to Rome, to this church that would have Polycarp, this famous man of church history, Jesus' words there in verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, these echo what he said, as I mentioned, back in chapter 1. John writes one seventeen and 18, when I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. These words of Jesus, these are words that come even from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament, Isaiah 44, verse six. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So these are the words of Jesus to this church, to this, this messenger, this angel, and, and, and again, for us as well. One commentator says this, only God is the first and the last. And therefore, the divinity of Jesus is being proclaimed here. Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all of history, the beginning, the end, and all points in between. The church in Smyrna isn't the victim of fate or hostile forces. Further, they have nothing to fear, for they belong to the one who triumphed over 
death. Whatever you're facing, whatever I'm facing, let, let's hear that. We are not victims of fate. We are not victims of hostile forces. Jesus Christ still rules over all. He is still the first and the last, the beginning, the end. His divinity is still very much intact. And whatever we are facing, he knows. But it's fascinating, not only is the divinity of Jesus on display by him being the first and the last. Notice he says um, there in in verse 8, who died and came to life. Well, this is one of those theological mysterious things, right? Did God die on the cross? Well, no, but yes, but no, and, and all that needs to be nuanced and so forth, okay, because God didn't die. The Trinity wasn't broken on the cross, and, and yet we, we, Jesus was the God-man, and it wasn't just his humanity, okay, on the cross. It was the God-man. He was completely God, completely man. So, again, we have to understand and, and nuance these things. But in this instance, to speak of Jesus as the first and the last, that definitely speaks of his divinity. But to say, I died and I rose, that, that is a nod to his humanity. And we need to hear that. And so another writer puts it this way. I love this. So as the first, God the Son existed before there was a Smyrna, before there was an Asia Minor, before Roman Empire, and anything at all. And as the last, Christ will outlive modern-day Izmir, Turkey, Europe, the United States, all of it. Christ is the eternal, transcendent one whose plan and work reach to the extremes of eternity past and future. But at the same time, he's fully human. He has to be human if he truly died and rose again. And church, that leads us to our catechism question for today. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Answer with me. One who is truly human and also truly God. That's the kind of redeemer we need. We need the God-man. And that's what God gave us. See, if Jesus were only God, he would not have been able to die in the place of sinful humanity in order to pay the price of our salvation. But on the other hand, if he were only human, then the death he died would not have had an eternal benefit to us. But because he died in, the, in his incarnate, God in the flesh, incarnate humanity as the perfect sacrifice, and because he was raised in the power of his indestructible life, he has authority to give life to all who believe in him. You see, the incarnation is not just theological conjecture. This is important. This is why this is a catechism question. We need a redeemer who is God, who is man. That's, that's what we need. We need his deity. We need his humanity. And the Smyrnans needed it some 2,000 years ago as well. They needed to remember this. Praise be to God that Christ is both the first and the last and the one who was dead and has come to life. He is fully God and fully man, undiminished deity, true humanity. And for this reason, we take comfort in the fact that the eternal one dwells in time, that the infinite and untouchable God can be touched by finite beings 
and that he shares in our pain, not simply stares at our suffering. Listen to that line. He shares in our pain, not simply stares at our suffering. What a difference. And that leads us to the commendation in verse nine. And I I want us to hear these first words. Verse nine, Jesus says, I know, I know. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. His words of commendation begin with him saying, I know. And we're going to come back to that at the end this morning. Jesus says, you have tribulation or affliction. Uh, The church at Smyrna faced pressure and trouble because of being Christians. Um, Related to that, most scholars note, was their poverty. And yet Jesus says, you're rich. You're not rich on the earth's scales, but but you are rich uh, in heaven. Um, but but they they were poor. Um, It seems like in an antagonistic environment, um, it would have been difficult for them to make a living. Uh, The the Romans and uh, many of the Jews, and and we'll talk about these words here because these are strong words and they have been misapplied throughout history in some horrible ways, but um, they were dealing with people that wouldn't sell to them, wouldn't wouldn't allow them to trade, in fact, later in Revelation 13, so into the deep weeds uh, of the book of Revelation, right? there's passages that speak of um, folks not being able to buy and sell unless they take the mark of the beast. And so this, this was stuff that they were starting to experience in Smyrna. The apostle James wrote to a similar group of people where he wrote in James 2.5 that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. Same idea, that's what Jesus says. You're poor, you don't have much, you're struggling, but you're rich. You've got me, you're, you're rich in the Lord's eyes. So they, they were facing tribulation, poverty, and then slander or, or blasphemy. To, to, to slander someone is to speak against someone in such a way as to want them to, to have harm or to injure their reputation. They were being being slandered. So we mentioned Polycarp already, uh, but again, this is what he would face just a few years later. After he made that profession that that he would not renounce Jesus, it says in the account, the multitude of heathen and the Jews living in Smyrna cried out with uncontrollable wrath. Then they joined with the mob in gathering wood to burn Polycarp alive. So this hostility, let, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. You have Jesus saying, you, you're experiencing tribulation, poverty, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, so this is uh, unfortunately one of those verses that uh, over the years has been pulled out of context and and. Jews have been called of Satan and and synagogues have been called synagogues of Satan in kind of this universal way. Uh, That is not what the Apostle John is saying. John was Jewish. The Lord Jesus was Jewish. Uh, What what John is getting at here, and even in this account of Polycarp, where 
the historians write that the multitude of heathen and the Jews living in Smyrna cried out with this wrath. Okay, what John is simply saying is that to, to be identified as something uh, ethnically doesn't mean that's who you are spiritually. And so the Apostle Paul would write even in Romans that not all are Jews inwardly who are Jews outwardly. In, in other words, just like to, to say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, that doesn't make someone born again, right? God has to do a supernatural work in order for someone's genuineness in their faith to be evident. Plenty of people in the history of the world have claimed to be Christian and, and are not. And, and all John is reiterating here is that in Smyrna, you have a lot of Jewish people by ethnic background, but they aren't God's people. In fact, this this group, they're being controlled by Satan. And he's going to say in a minute that they're going to be delivered. It's actually the devil at work through this group, along with Rome, and these hostile forces coming together against the church. It seems that, again, this hostility against Christians maybe came from the fact that Christians worship a Galilean peasant, as we would, would note, and in their mind, that's not, um, and one who would die a criminal's death. And so to, to worship that would, would be blasphemous to, to Jewish people. Um, but then even the, the Christians succeeded in sharing the gospel. And there were people known as God-fearers who said, we want to follow this Messiah. And so there were those that rejected that and, and didn't want them, just even as when Jesus was killed. The scriptures note that the Jews went along and, and got the crowds riled up. And it's not that every Jewish person, this isn't anti-Semitism, this is simply a statement of different people at work in this, this time. Judaism had a legal protection under the Roman Empire that the Christian movement didn't have. And so such Jews were not really God's people, John is saying. They're not really God's people. They were, in fact, rather a synagogue of Satan, Satan was at work in them and through them. And so again, they sound hateful, they sound anti-Semitic to our ears, and again, they have been used in history in those kinds of ways. But when John wrote, the Jews in Smyrna had this social, political power, and the church was at the bottom and didn't have that. And John's not writing to incite hatred against Jews. He's writing to comfort God's people. He's writing to these believers in Smyrna who may have been tempted to to renounce, but to say, no, no, Satan is at work in these groups. Don't give up. Be victorious. Conquer. Overcome. Resist the temptation. You know, a church in a place and time and a church persecuted, and we're going to end in a few minutes by praying for the persecuted church. And we've got to remember um, we are not persecuted here like this. We may be made fun of, we may be ridiculed, and there may be hints of things to come, but we have not faced anything like that. Um, in fact, jump forward to verse 10. Listen to what Jesus commands or exhorts these Christians. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, that's the second command. In other words, look, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Yeah, Rome's in charge, and yeah, there's others that are inciting the crowds and the mobs, but it's the devil at work. Be on the lookout for it. He's, he's about to throw some of you into prison, and look what it says, that you may be 
tested. The word tested is the same word as tempt in in the Greek. So context tells you, well, what is it? And one way to think about it is this. Tested means tempt when it's devil, the devil doing it from his perspective. God doesn't tempt us to evil, the scriptures tell us, but God allows us to be tested. And so the same word is used of, of things. And John says, Jesus says, through John writing, you're about to be thrown in prison. Don't, don't be afraid of what you're going to suffer. It's the devil at work so that you may be tested. It seems to be the, the context here. There's a testing. And then he says, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Maybe it was 10 literal days. The point is it's, it's a definite time. Be faithful. And look at this, unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. So the commands are, do not fear, keep an eye out, and be faithful. We, we would write it differently, wouldn't we? <laughs> if this were our letter, and we were making it up, don't, don't be afraid about what you're going to suffer. Be on the lookout for the temptation you're going to face. You're going to go into prison, but be faithful, because you'll get released. You'll live. But Jesus says, no, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Their crown of life is simply eternal life. This is something all of God's sons and daughters get one day. We, when we pass from here into God's presence, we get the crown of life. Tim Keller received the crown of life a couple of days ago. Their suffering was going to be brief. It may not have ended in them being removed from prison, but death, like Polycarp, who I mentioned some few years later. But their reward was eternal life itself. Jesus triumphed over death and life, right? That's who he said he was. And so he says, you don't need to fear death. Jump to verse 11 for a second. There, though, the, the promise is the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. See, see, we're all going to die once. And, and this church was being encouraged not to fear it, even if it's because you're in jail and you're going to die as a martyr. Don't fear that. And then the promise is you're not going to be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? This is a phrase John would use three times. In Revelation, here in John chapter 20, and then uh, again in John 21, um, it's a phrase that um, spoke of eternal death. And and so in John 20 and 21, it's identified as the lake of fire. It's hell. The second death is hell. So don't be afraid of the first death. Every person faces the first death. And if you overcome because Jesus overcome. If you're born again, you don't have to fear. You don't have to worry about that second death. That's his, his word of encouragement even to, to them. But for us, right, right, as we, we look at verse 10, I think Jesus is still saying to us, do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Well, well, maybe that day is going to come. That day definitely has come elsewhere in, in our world. There are Christians around the world that are suffering and being tortured and being put in prison for Christ. But what about us here? Um, I do think we, we face persecution and, and slander, right? Um, is, is it not slander to say that we um, are bigots simply because we want to follow what God's word says? Aren't we, aren't we persecuted and ridiculed and mocked because we say, no, we, we follow Jesus. He's in charge of our life, not our feelings, not what the culture says, but Jesus. We take our cues from him. And we are. We are increasingly slandered, right? You're a bigot if you don't tolerate the things that everyone else tolerates. If you say identity comes from what God says, not from what I feel. If you say that that gender and uh, uh, sex are all related to biology and not to what people think and want, that's hate, hatred of you. How dare you? And increasingly, we're facing those things. If, if you say marriage is the relationship between a man and a woman, that's, that's what God has said, you're slandered. And I think we need to hear Jesus saying to us, do not fear, do not fear. And the day may come when you are thrown in prison for following me and, and holding to what my word says. And you may be tested and it may be a prolonged time, 10 days, some short defined amount of time, a tribulation, a trial, but be faithful. Be faithful. Back to verse 11 then, the promise or or the the summons to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers doesn't have to face the second death. See, this letter, friends, was written to a church um, suffering. I mean, truly suffering. Um, like, Like the church in our day in, in maybe communist China or, or uh, North Korea or, or some of those places where it's against the law and literally prison awaits. I went even this morning to a website. Um, some of you know the organization, Voice of the Martyrs. You can go to persecution.com and, and you can read. And we ought to read more about this. We ought to pray more for those who are persecuted. Uh, you know, it's interesting the, the persecuted church, and I'm, I'm not calling us that at all. We, we may be ridiculed and mocked, and, and maybe persecution is coming one day, but for now we aren't. But those in those parts of the world that are truly persecuted, they, they ask not that they would be delivered from it, but simply that they would be faithful, that they would be able to do what Jesus says here to do, that they would be faithful unto death. So with that, I have three applications for us from this text, um, three applications. Number one, let's be prayerful. Specifically, let's ask God to strengthen and encourage Christians facing persecution and death. Let, let's pause and, and just do that right now. Can, can, can maybe just two of you pray for Christians that are persecuted to be strong and encouraged? And then uh, I'll move on to our second application.
Amen. In Hebrews, the writer says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, quoting Psalm 118, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Man can kill, but I don't have to fear the first death if I have the Lord and if I have nothing and if I'm poor. And that's what this church knew and believed in in Jesus' rights. Be faithful, be strong, don't fear. Be on the lookout, but be faithful. But that's our first application. And let's pray. And and again, go to the website, persecution.com and and pray for those that are persecuted. The second application is once again to be prayerful, but but this time I want us to reflect on we we need to continue to ask God to save and and who's your one? We've talked about that a few times this year and I want to keep this idea in front of us again and again. Who's your one? If, If God were to answer the very next prayer you prayed, who would he save? Who would he save? Who in your life needs to be brought from death to life? Who in your life needs the effect of the good news of the work and person of Jesus? Who needs the crown of life? So let's pray just for a moment. God, please save and just just name those names, the, the name, the one that you want God to save. God, please save Will. Just pray that simple prayer. God, please save and name the name of who you're asking God to draw to himself. You know, as a society, we work so hard at escaping the first death. People prolong it and, and are terrified by it, and rightly so. Death is an enemy. But everyone faces it. We need to pray that we would have God's heart for people to escape the second death. Keep, keep praying for your ones. And again, God knows the heart, of course. So be prayerful. Ask God to strengthen and encourage Christians facing persecution and death. Be prayerful. Ask God to save your one or two or three, the people in your life that need Jesus. And then number three, be encouraged. Jesus knows what we are going through. This is where we began this morning, and this is where I want to end now. Right? Jesus' first words to this church. He says, I know. I know what you're going through. He knew exactly the persecution and poverty and slander that this church in Smyrna was facing. And he knows exactly what struggles and hurts you're going through. Maybe it's health, maybe it's work, maybe it's relational. be encouraged. Jesus knows. And he's, he's present. He invites us to come boldly to seek him, the one who is our high priest at the right hand of the Father.
Be encouraged. He hasn't left you. Be encouraged. He knows. He knows. And while we can ask and we should ask for deliverance from whatever that is, he promises to be with us. And we need to take courage in that. Even if it means the trial lasts for a period, it doesn't go away. And that's hard, friends. Chris, I'm going to pick on you for a second, brother, because you come in almost every week and you are hurting physically. And, and you have asked and asked and asked and many of us have joined you in asking God to take your hurt. And God hasn't taken that yet. But he's with you and you believe that and that's your joy and strength, right? Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And you are an encouragement, brother, to all of us. So, friends, please stand and let's, let's pray for Chris, but let's pray that we would be encouraged because Jesus knows and he's with us. So, God, we join Chris again in praying for him. We are sorry that he hurts physically. And we ask you to take the pain to bring restoration to his body, to use the doctors and those that are caring for him Give them wisdom and help experimental things work. And and we, we ask that. But we thank you for his joy and his faith and trust in you. And he believes and knows that you are with him. And that's his strength. And he's encouraged by that. And so God, may we be encouraged that you know what we're going through, what we're struggling with. You won't leave us. Thank you for this word to Smyrna and this word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace.